Please open God's word with me to Colossians, Colossians chapter 1, beginning in verse 9. I'm going to read down to verse 22, which will be the focus of our morning. Hear the words of the Lord in verse 9 to the church at Colossae. And so from the day we heard, we have not ceased to pray for you, asking that you may be filled with the knowledge of his will and all spiritual wisdom and understanding, so as to walk in a manner worthy of the Lord, fully pleasing to him, bearing fruit in every good work and increasing in the knowledge of God. May you be strengthened with all power according to his glorious might, for all endurance and patience with joy, giving thanks to the Father, who has qualified you to share in the inheritance of the saints in light. He has delivered us from the domain of darkness and transferred us to the kingdom of His beloved Son, in whom we have redemption, the forgiveness of sins. He is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn of all creation, for by Him all things were created in heaven and on earth, visible and invisible, Whether thrones or dominions or rulers or authorities, all things were created through him and for him. And he is before all things, and in him all things hold together. And he is the head of the body, the church. He is the beginning, the firstborn from the dead, that in everything he might be preeminent. For in him all The fullness of God was pleased to dwell and through him to reconcile to himself all things, whether on earth or in heaven, making peace by the blood of his cross. And you who once were alienated and hostile in mind, doing evil deeds, he has now reconciled in his body of flesh by his death in order to in order to present you holy and blameless and above reproach before him that is God the Father. In this passage and in this verse 22 in particular, the Apostle Paul describes how alienated sinners are made into heavenly citizens of God's kingdom. Here in America, we have a way of making illegal aliens American citizens. And this process is called naturalization. An illegal alien who wants to become an American citizen must go through a process to become naturalized, become a citizen. They have to fill out an application. They have to get fingerprinted. They have to provide documentation from where they once were national. They must be interviewed twice, and then they must take an oath of citizenship. It's a long process, an important process for the sake of our own nation, but it is a process. Well, that was how the false teachers in Paul's day approached salvation. It was a process to them. They would see salvation as a process that man must work alongside God with to complete The Apostle Paul wants to rebuke that this morning in this text. False teachers in Paul's day were trying to convince the Colossians 
that they, if they wanted to become a heavenly citizen, they must go through a process. It's Jesus plus man-made rituals and regulations if you're going to be accepted into God's kingdom. But again, here in this letter, the Apostle Paul corrects their errors. But what I love about it is he doesn't simply write an apologetic against false teachers. He actually writes this in such a way it's edification for believers. That's amazing. It's also the power of the Holy Spirit inspiring him. He's telling us in this text, all of us, the Colossians as well as us, that our spiritual naturalization is not a process. It is an instantaneous declaration granted to us through Christ's reconciliation. So today what he's going to do, he's going to reveal to us that that our spiritual naturalization comes through Christ's reconciliation. In other words, it comes through what Christ did, not what we do. We don't have to go through a process to be counted as holy and blameless and above reproach before a holy and righteous God because Christ was holy and blameless and above reproach in our place. Naturalization, the way we use it here in America, means to confer, is to confer the rights of a national on one who was formally and legally alienated due to their allegiance to another nation. And that describes us. We were under the domain of darkness. We were legally there due to our sin, yet we are now spiritually naturalized by God's grace. Paul's point in verse 22 is that that through Christ's legal exchange, and it is a legal exchange on the cross, his substitutionary work, Through that, all those who trust in his completed work alone are now recognized as citizens of heaven by God's naturalization, okay? By what God declared about us, by his grace. He's emphasizing that that Jesus' substitutionary sacrifice alone, that was all it took to make us legally citizens of heaven, It was his sacrifice alone that makes us legally holy, legally blameless, legally above reproach or free from any accusation in God's sight. He's pointing out that that man-made rituals and self-atonement is not necessary, it is not profitable, and it is not acceptable before a holy and righteous God. He's talking in terms of the end of days here. He's talking in an eschatological format. He's talking about the day of judgment when we all stand before God the Father. We will be accepted because we are free from any accusations. We are blameless and we are holy in Christ. On the last day, that will be revealed. And I'm excited about that because I'm not holy and I'm not blameless and I'm not above reproach practically like I want to be, but I am declared to be by God's grace. And one day, he's going to reveal that for the glory of Jesus. I'm excited about that. We're not accepted by what we do because verse 21 says we're defiled. When we looked at verse 21, it talked about us being alienated from God. It talked about us being hostile in mind, doing evil deeds. We were corrupt from the inside out. Only those who trust in Christ 
will be able to stand on the day when God fixes his gaze, his judicial gaze upon our hearts and looks inside and sees what's truly there. For the believer, it's a good day. It's an exciting day. But it is a day that that Paul is referring to when God's almighty judicial gaze will be fixed upon every single person who believes in Christ, and this is what he'll see. Look at 2 Peter 3. It's this day that he's talking about there in Colossians. Peter refers to it as the day of God or the day of the Lord is how some translations may pin it. But here in 2 Peter 3, verse 10, Peter writes, But the day of the Lord will come like a thief, and then the heavens will pass away with a roar, and the heavenly bodies will be burned up and dissolved. And the earth and the works that are done on it will be exposed. Since all these things are thus to be dissolved, what sort of people ought you to be in lives of holiness and godliness, waiting for and hastening the coming of the day of God? Now, here's something really unique, I think, about the eschaton. When, when, when the... New Testament writers talk about the end, the end of time, eschaton, the eschatological end of all things. They, they talk about it as if we're going to stand before God with confidence, but also we're going to be challenged to live differently in light of it. So though we are holy and blameless and above reproach, Peter says you ought to live like it until that day comes. Just think about this, though. According to what he says, what Paul says in Colossians 1.22, we can stand on that day with confidence. He tells us there by God's grace through Jesus' sacrifice, you and I will not merely be able to withstand God's judicial gaze, like bowing down, going, oh, don't look upon me. He doesn't refer to it at that, in that way at all. He says he's going to present you. He's going to call you before God. He's going to hold you up before God. It's not like we're cowering there. We're not cowering if we're cloaked in Christ's blood-soaked robe of righteousness. It's in that that we stand before a holy and righteous God unashamed and unaccused of any guilt. We stand before Him as naturalized citizens of heaven through Christ's reconciliation. Now, this is, to me, astounding, astoundingly good news. And that's really Paul's point here. He made reference to the, the bad news of verse 21. He says again, And you who once were alienated and hostile in mind, doing evil deeds, he's now reconciled in the body of his flesh. The unholy are made holy through the Holy One becoming sin for us. The guilty that he talks about, are made guiltless through Christ receiving our punishment. The rightly and justly accused are declared righteous through God the Father's acceptance of Jesus' sacrifice. He's pointing out something very important to the Colossians. They cannot trust in themselves. They cannot trust in anything and anyone but Christ and Christ alone. And look at the benefits. Complete trust in Christ is all that we need. Knowing that He died for me is enough. 
just enough for me to be able to stand before the judicial gaze of God Almighty without fear, without shame. Listen, God inspires Paul here to write this down for our good. It's not just a a rebuke to the false teachers. He's inspired to edify us. That's the point of writing to the church at Colossae. It's to edify them. Look at verse 22. He says, here's, here's the purpose. It's in order to present you holy and blameless and above reproach. That's encouraging words. Listen, that is your legal description in God's kingdom. That's your resume, folks. That's you. When God sees you, he doesn't see what you've been doing lately. He sees what Christ did in your place. This is your legal description in God's kingdom. This is your documentation, if you will, of your citizenship. This is what gets you in. This is what keeps you there. And it doesn't just keep you there merely as a substandard being. No, he he is accepting you as if you are God the Son. You are holy and blameless and above reproach because you've been reconciled through his substitutionary sacrifice. We don't merely slip into the kingdom. He doesn't let us in by the skin of our teeth. He's not merely tolerating our presence. Not at all. According to this, we're presented as naturalized citizens, legally adopted, blood-bought children. We are presented to God the Father by God the Son, our substitute. We're presented to God the Father as a testimony of Jesus' supremacy over our sin and over Satan's power. That's why you're reconciled. It's not to have your best life now. If your afterlife is hell, this may be your best life now, but but if your, your afterlife is in Christ, it's because He wants to display His grace and His power over sin and Satan and self. To me, this is exciting. So, so I'm belaboring the point, and I know that. But I love this passage because it's my hope. It's my testimony by God's grace. Here in this passage, we're reminded that through Jesus' reconciliation, we are granted eternal naturalization in God's kingdom. Okay, so I'm going to give you an outline about that now, all right? According to this passage in verse 22, all those who trust in Christ's reconciliation alone are now, number one, positionally holy. Positionally holy. Those who trust in Christ's reconciliation alone are now, number two, legally blameless. Legally blameless. And all those who trust in Christ's reconciliation alone are now, number three, eternally above reproach. Eternally above reproach. So we're positionally holy, legally blameless, and eternally above reproach through Christ and Christ alone. Look at verse 19, chapter 1 of Colossians. For in Him... This is telling us who it is that we're in. It's in Him all the fullness of God was pleased to dwell, and through Him to reconcile to Himself all things, whether on earth or in heaven, making peace by the blood of His cross. That's how we're reconciled. 
God the Son takes on flesh to come and take the penalty for our sins in our place. To satisfy God's justice. His judicial justice. His legal requirements. The soul that sins must die. We have sinned, yet Christ had not sinned, yet He took our place and died in our place, receiving God's wrath for us. And what you need to understand is when you read through this section, 19 to 22, the Apostle Paul is very focused on using Old Testament legal terminology. Every one of those words in verse 22 has to do with a legal requirement that the law of God gives to be an acceptable sacrifice. Holy, blameless, above reproach. He's asserting in really strong terms that reconciliation with God can only be accomplished by trusting in Christ's accomplishments, not our own. Because, again, in verse 19 to 21, verses 19 to 21, we see that we can't do what Christ did. Christ alone lived a perfect life for alienated sinners. Christ alone submitted to God's will for hostile rebels. Christ alone received God's judgment for our evil deeds. That's all in verse 21. We were alienated and hostile and actively evil. Yet His perfect life, His submission to God's will, and His judgment in our place set us free from condemnation and made us legal citizens of heaven. This is telling us how spiritual aliens become naturalized citizens of heaven. But what I like here is is how that Paul goes beyond the how of verse 21, how we are made right before God, to the why we are made right before God in verse 22. You really have to read the whole verse as a whole, but it's sort of an envelope verse, the beginning of it and the very end of it sort of tie together. You can almost leave the section of holy, blameless, and above reproach out to understand what's happening here, the purpose. It says there in verse 22 that that Paul's going to give us the why, okay, of, of reconciliation in legal terms. He says, he has now reconciled in his body of flesh by his death in order to present you. Christ has now done something. He has now done something in his body, that is, his whole life, in order. That's the purpose clause. Christ was crucified for this purpose. Here is why Jesus died for you. It's to present you. That's his purpose. It's to present you. And and actually, the the term here is, is a judicial term. It's a legal term. It actually means to be summoned into court before the king or the judge. He died to summon you before the king. Paul says the purpose of Jesus' reconciling sacrifice was to present you before him. You see the last part of the verse? Before him is speaking of God the Father. This presentation refers to the great consummation of the ages, the eschaton. He is going to present you on the last day as a testimony to God the Father of His power, His supremacy. Look at 2 Thessalonians 1. 2 Thessalonians 1, verse 5, speaking to the persecuted 
Thessalonians, he, he writes this, This is the evidence of the righteous judgment of God, that you may be considered worthy of the kingdom of God for which you are also suffering, since indeed God considers it just to repay with affliction those who afflict you and to grant relief to you who are afflicted as well as to us when the Lord Jesus is revealed from heaven with his mighty angels in flaming fire, inflicting vengeance on those who do not know God and those who do not obey the gospel of the Lord Jesus. They will suffer the punishment of eternal destruction away from the presence of the Lord and from the glory of his might. When he comes on that day, it's the same day that Paul's talking about, when he comes on that day, but why does he come on that day, saints? He tells us. Here's why he's coming on that day. When he comes on that day to be glorified in the saints. When he comes to be glorified in his saints and to be marveled at among all those who believed. This is why we are reconciled to God. It is to bring glory to Jesus on that day. Do you, you, you understand? When He comes, He's coming to magnify His greatness through us. He's going to display His perfect power and mercy and justice through the redeemed who stand before Him, not afraid on that day, but anticipating it with joy, rejoicing. This, this term that Paul uses to present or to present you was a, a secular Greek term that they would use to describe what I said earlier, a summons before a king. But it was also an Old Testament legal term of presenting someone to God to give evidence that they are ceremonially clean. Now just think about that. God's going to summon you. Now, you and all your baggage, you and me and all of our sin, right? One day he's going to summon you. Jesus is going to summon you before God Almighty and his judicial gaze will be upon you. And when he sees you, saints, he doesn't see you. He sees God the Son covering you. He is not merely looking at you saying, okay, I guess you get in. He's looking at you saying, come home, my child. This is your heavenly kingdom. Dwell here with me. This is Paul's point. Paul is trying to wrap this around the minds of the Colossians who are being tempted by the false teachers to try to, to work their way to heaven. Be good. Don't do this. Don't do that. Follow these rules and believe in Jesus, and that will make you a better Christian. Paul's saying, can it be any better than this? God's going to present you as ceremonially clean through Christ's blood that has atoned for your sins. Paul's idea here is that, that there's a supreme reason for our reconciliation, and we need to know it. And if we know it, it'll change the way we live practically. The supreme reason for our reconciliation is to testify to Christ's supremacy, that he is preeminent. It's, it's by Jesus' sacrifice, he tells us, that we are now made acceptable to God and that our minds and our motives are going to be transformed to do what God wants us to do. It's not that we do to get heaven, but we do because God has given us heaven in Christ. Paul's emphasizing 
that it's not what man does that sets him apart unto God. It's what Christ did for us that sets us apart and that motivates our hearts to do for God. We now long to live for God. We now long to offer up our lives as living sacrifices, knowing that we will be accepted because Jesus' sacrifice was offered up for us. Be amazed as we go through this first point. Paul is saying that those who trust in Christ's reconciliation alone are now. Look what it says. Now. I love this. It says, He has now reconciled in His body of flesh by His death in order to present you holy. It's now that you are positionally holy before God. Point number one. That's amazing itself. He's not talking about you're going to be holy. He's saying before God, in God's sight, right now, because of Christ, you are seated with Him in heavenly places. The term holy means to be separated from sin and set apart to God. That is God's declaration about us through Christ. We are completely separated, like a beautiful, perfect sacrifice, set apart to God for His service. Paul's applying this to our transformed position that, that Christ's life and His obedience gives to us. Paul's saying this, this holy position, it comes through God's gift of imputation. He offered up His Son in our place. It's not given to us because of our human effort or a process of rituals. This is now your eternal position before God because of Christ. Look at 2 Corinthians 5 to see how that happened. 2 Corinthians 5, 21. Now, if, unless you're holy, I mean, unless you really think you're actually holy and you think that you never sinned, and that you're perfectly okay without Christ, um, you won't understand the greatness of this text. However, if you are a believer, you'll understand the greatness of this text because you're believing in Christ. You're trusting in Christ, who it says here in verse 21, For our sake, God the Father made Him, God the Son, to be sin, who knew no sin, the one that was pure and undefiled and blameless. Here's why he did it. So that in Christ, we might become the righteousness of God. And when we talk about God, we talk about a holy being, totally other than us, but also totally separated from any sin or evil or wrong. And through Christ, that's how he considers us. I'm practically not sinless. Are you? None of us are. Christ was. And in God's estimation, in God's declaration through imputation, we are declared or credited to be as righteous and holy and acceptable as Jesus Christ himself. That is the gospel. That is good news. That's what Paul's trying to impart to the saints there at Colossae. Let me just add this. I, I really believe that when reconciliation is rightly appreciated, it will become the engine that drives us to practical holiness. Think about that. If you rightly appreciate what Jesus has done for you, a sinner, by taking the punishment for your sins upon Himself, though He was 
righteous and, and unstained by sin, yet he was treated like the most vile sinner in the world in our place. That will be the engine that drives you to live differently here on earth, to live a holy life that pursues holiness for the glory of Christ who died for us. I think the Apostle Paul got that in 1 Corinthians 15. You don't have to turn there, but 15.10, the Apostle Paul, as he talks about the gospel, he, he then progresses into this part about the apostles and about their work, and he begins to talk about his own work. He says, I worked harder than any of the other guys. But it really wasn't me. It was the grace of God that was working in me. See, he rightly understood reconciliation. And it drove his sanctification. I mean, if anybody understood the gospel, it was the Apostle Paul. And if the gospel was just believe in Jesus and you get to go to heaven and your life can still stay the same as it was previous to your conversion, Paul would have been the guy who would have said, hey, I'm going to kick back and relax. I'm going to heaven. I was a heathen. Now I'm saved. But no, Paul says, I worked harder. Did he work harder to earn his salvation? No. He worked harder because of his salvation. If you're declared positionally holy, how do you live in light of that declaration? Think about that. Go back to Colossians 1.22. He moves on from this legal term of holiness to this logical <laughs> revelation i think about holiness that if 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 christ holiness is imputed to us then all those who trust in christ's work are now also number two legally blameless before god legally blameless before god he uses the, the legal term blameless here to really drive his point deeper into their minds it's it's almost when you read holy uh, blameless and above reproach think you, you think paul you're being redundant I mean, doesn't that mean the same thing over and over and over again? And yes, they're all sort of like different facets of the same diamond, okay? And that's his point. He wants them to understand, listen, you're not merely going to heaven. You are going in Christ into the kingdom. You're cloaked. You're positionally holy. You're legally blameless before God. This term here describes the perfect condition of the sacrificial animals that was used in the Old Testament. Numbers, Numbers 6.14 describes that. It says, And he shall bring his gift to the Lord, one male lamb, a year old, without blemish for a burnt offering, and one ewe lamb, a year old, without blemish as a sin offering, and one ram without blemish as a peace offering. And saints, I'm going to tell you, that's Jesus. He is the one who is without blemish, the lamb. He is the one who was taken away for our sins, stood in our place condemned. The blameless one took our blame and our shame on the cross. That's, term, that's the term that's, that's used to describe Jesus' perfection of the Old Testament types and shadows in the New Testament when he became our sin offering at Calvary. Here in Colossians 1.22, Paul, Paul says that legally, you must understand this, legally, according to the Old Testament legal requirements, Jesus paid your sin debt. And he did that in order to set you apart, make you holy, right? And make you acceptable, blameless 
acceptable in God's sight. Look back in Colossians. Here's how Jesus did it. Colossians 2.11. Jesus makes us blameless through this process. He becomes our sacrifice. He, he is now able to take our place legally, and God punishes him legally for our sins. He is our substitute so that God can remove all blame from us, and we will be guiltless. All right, you don't feel guiltless right now, do you? You are in Christ. That makes you want to be guiltless, right? Practically. That's his point. Verse 11 says, In him, speaking of Jesus, also you were circumcised with a circumcision made without hands by putting off the body of the flesh by the circumcision of Christ. What that means is the cutting off of Jesus on the cross brought you in. When Jesus is on the cross, it's, it's like the, the act of circumcision. Our sin is being cut away. He was separated from God in our place, treated like we should be treated. God turned his back on his son because he took our place and he was cut off, circumcised. And then it says this in verse 12, having been buried with him. Now, he just didn't go to the cross for us. We were buried with Christ in baptism. We were immersed into Christ. We went with him into the grave in which you also were raised with him through faith in the powerful working of God who raised him from the dead. We didn't just go to the cross. We didn't just go to the grave. We came forth with Christ. He is our legal representative. He is the last Adam. He is our federal head, if you will. And you, he says in verse 13, who were dead in your trespasses and the uncircumcision of your flesh, God made you, he says, alive together with him. Having done what? Having forgiven us all our trespasses. How? How did he do it? By canceling the record of debt that stood against us with its legal demands. This he set aside. How did he set it aside? How did he satisfy his justice? He nailed it to the cross upon Christ. He canceled the record of debt. You are blameless. That is meant to encourage you this morning. You don't feel blameless all the time. And there are times when you're not acting blameless. But when we are at that point, we can come back to this text. We can rejoice. We are made alive together with Him, Jesus. This is a divine miracle of grace. We were not acceptable before God apart from this. We were alienated. We were hostile in mind and in doing evil deeds. And Paul's really just trying to drive this all home so that we'd feel the, the, the honor and the privilege and the joy of what it means to be in Christ. He's driving home the point that if, if Jesus' holiness was legally credited to our account through imputation, through the acceptance of His sacrifice in our place, okay, by God's judicial declaration, then if that's true, then we are now completely blameless, without blemish in God's sight, which means we are accepted as a perfect 
sacrifice. We are as accepted as Jesus Christ himself. That's amazing. That's encouraging. And here's why it's encouraging to me. I ain't blameless. Are you? I struggle with sin. Do you? At times, I feel completely unworthy to call myself a follower of Jesus Christ. I feel accused by my conscience. I feel accused by Satan. But Paul wants us to take courage this morning. According to this text, verse 22, Colossians 1. God declares that no matter who accuses us of being a failure as a Christian, God has already declared us to be holy, blameless, and above reproach in Christ. Not because we are obedient, not because we are blameless. I wish that was true. But we're declared to be above reproach because of what Christ did for us. Because he was above reproach. And God wants to magnify the greatness of his holiness, his blameless condition on the day that he glorifies himself through the saints. We need to live in light of that day, church. We should be living in light of the eschaton, the end. It is for that that you are saved. The journey between life and death is just a small gap. But eventually, one day, we will stand before the throne of God under His gaze, magnifying Jesus without any doubt in our heart, completely confident that God is well-pleased in His Son, saving wretches like us. See, your, your salvation is a testimony to Jesus' supremacy. That's what it's all about not to give you a happy life. It's not to make you comfortable in life. It is to magnify the goodness and the grace and the justice and the holiness of God Himself that was manifest through Christ and imputed to sinners who do not have a right on their own to stand before Him. Yet to show the goodness and greatness of Christ, He says, here's what I'm going to give you. My son, rejoice. It will change the way you live your life, by the way. It was Jesus that carried our sins to the cross. It was Jesus that bore our curse. And he did that so that we could be judicially declared righteous in God's sight. We are, according to God's word in this text, above reproach throughout eternity. That's how Paul closes here in one twenty-two. He tells us that those who trust in Christ's reconciliation alone are now, number three, eternally, eternally. It's not, it's not temporary. It's eternally that we are declared to be above reproach before God. This, this final term is to extend us eternal hope. Not only are we blameless in God's sight through Christ's work, we are also, also impossible to accuse. We are above reproach. That's what that means. Nothing can stick to you. No accusation of others, yourself, or Satan can stick. It's impossible. We are impossible to accuse of sin. 
doesn't mean we don't sin. But the guilt of sin is not ours any longer. Christ took the guilt for us. This term, above reproach, actually means that. It actually means we are guiltless. Guiltless. Romans 8 helps us to magnify that, helps us to see that, that nothing and no one can change God's declaration, not even ourselves. The declaration He made about us in Christ and through Christ cannot be altered by any accusation, any feelings of guilt that we may have. You may feel unworthy. You may feel like you're a struggling failure, right? Yet the reality is you are in Christ and you are made guiltless in God's sight. And nothing and no one can change that according to this, Romans 8.31. For what then shall we say to these things? If God is for us, who can be against us? I could actually stop there. If God is for you, who's going to do anything to change that? He's the Almighty One. If God has set His sights on you, who can be against you? He magnifies how, how wonderful God's love is for us in verse 32. This, this one who is for you, he says, he didn't even spare his own son, but gave him up for us all. How will he not also with him graciously give us all things? All things there are pertaining to salvation. Then he says this, Who shall bring any charge against God's elect, God's chosen people? It is God who justifies who is to condemn? Christ Jesus is the one who died. More than that, he was raised, or who was raised, who is at the right hand of God, who indeed is interceding for us. Who shall separate us from the love of Christ? And he gives a list of possibilities. Shall tribulation, or distress, or persecution, or famine, or nakedness, or danger, or sword? As it is written, for your sake we are being killed all the day long. We are regarded as sheep to be slaughtered. No. In all these things, we are more than conquerors through Jesus, through Him who loved us. For I am sure that neither death nor life, nor angels nor rulers, nor things present nor things to come, nor powers, nor height, nor depth, nor anything else, including you, because you're a creation, nor anything else in all creation will be able to separate us from the love of God in Christ Jesus our Lord. Paul in Romans, Paul in Colossians is saying the same thing. It is impossible for guilt to be laid to your account because Christ paid it for you. He paid the sin debt for your guilt on the cross. It is impossible for us to be tried again for our sins. It's impossible because Jesus Christ has already paid our penalty. We are now as guiltless as Jesus by God's divine grace. Now, that should cause us to want to, to seek to honor God with our life. It doesn't want us to say, hey, now we have a license to sin. No, may it never be. This should cause us to love holiness, seek to be blameless, live above reproach in honor of the one who saved us. At the end of Colossians 1.22, Paul reminds us that all of us are going to come before God. We're going to be presented before God Almighty. And we'll either be presented in our sinfulness or in Christ's righteousness. Look at the last two words, especially the, 
the second word from the last there in verse 22, before God. We're going to be presented before God. Before is the Greek word kata enopion. Kata meaning down and enopion meaning in the eye. We're going to be presented down in the eye of God Almighty. Christ has reconciled us in order to present us to the, my translation, the concentrated gaze of God Almighty before Him. He reconciled us to present us before the concentrated gaze of God. God will look upon us and see everything within us. Everything we've ever done, everything we've ever thought about doing, He'll see it all. But He won't see any of it. Because He sees what Christ has done in our place. To wash it away. He will not hold us guilty for the crimes we've committed against Him because He held His Son guilty in our place. And Jesus was punished for my sins. This concentrated gaze that Paul talks about here that will be fixed upon all believers is meant to cause us joy, not fear. It causes us joy because when He looks upon us, He will see the evidence of His Son's supreme work in us. The work of conquering our sin, conquering Satan, will be revealed on that day when God the Father looks upon the work of God the Son through us. We are no longer under the judicial gaze of God. Jesus came under the judicial gaze of God the Father on the cross so that we could stand before Him not with fear and shame, but we could stand before Him as beloved children, according to what Paul's saying. We don't stand before Him as one that would be merely tolerated. We stand before Him as one who will be embraced as a son and a daughter of the kingdom of God. According to this passage, if you have trusted in Christ, His life, His death, His resurrection, His intercession, His second coming, you will be able to stand before God eternally in His pleasure. You will forever stand in God's pleasure as a forgiven, beloved, and blood-bought child. Adopted by Christ. Paid for with His blood. Your reconciliation will lead to eternal naturalization. Remember that when, when you stand before God the Father on the day of the Lord, you will gaze into the most pure eyes imaginable. You'll gaze into the eyes of the one, though, who when, with one moment will, will send a declaration about those who rebelled against Christ down to those who are sinners and loving their sin that will extend them nothing but judgment. You'll look into those same eyes. You won't see judgment. You'll see the eyes of the one who sent his son to make an atonement for your sins. You'll not be ashamed when he looks upon you. You may feel shame now, but let me tell you, today is the day to repent. And rejoice that one day you will stand before God unashamed 
cloaked in Christ's righteousness, never to be rejected, always to be embraced, that should motivate our sanctification, saints. I hope you're encouraged by that this morning. That's the intent of my heart, and I believe the intent of the Apostle Paul and the Holy Spirit here. I hope you're encouraged, and I hope you're eager to live as a living sacrifice. I hope you're longing for heaven and the day of the Lord. And I pray that you are willing and able to tell others about the hope that we have in Christ of being made holy and blameless and above reproach. No matter what we've done and no matter what we'll do, Christ has finished the work for us. I pray that you would encourage others to look upon him today. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, today we thank you. For you are the giver of all good things and the greatest of things. You are the giver of your own Son, whom you sent to reconcile sinners, those who are alienated, hostile, and doing evil deeds. Yet by his atoning work, his substitutionary sacrifice, his perfect life, his his death, and his resurrection, you have made a declaration about us. We are accepted as holy and blameless and above reproach in Christ. That we can stand before you on the last day and look into your face and see the wonder of your amazing love and grace that came through Christ. As you look back upon us, you accept us, you love us, you make us heavenly citizens. I thank you for that hope. And I pray that that hope sanctifies our lives, sets us apart, makes us active in obedience, joyful in obedience, eager in obedience to honor Christ, our Savior. I pray that you bless that this morning. In Jesus' name.